This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. I think everyone has that one friend who makes a huge deal out of their birthday. Every year, they don't just have a party or go out for a fancy dinner. Rather, they throw a huge bash with a ton of food, drinks, and music that rages on until the sun comes up. And they expect all of their friends to join in on the fun. It isn't just a celebration. It's a festival. Well, back in 1899, one mother threw her son a birthday shindig of his own. And it was so opulent, it made a royal coronation look like a five-year-old's birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. Her name was Sarah Goodrich. And she had been an actress on Broadway, where she eventually met a man named Edwin Knowles. Edwin, if you're curious, had come from Rhode Island, finding his way to the New York theater scene as an up-and-coming actor. He had gotten his start performing with the Worrell Sisters, a trio of siblings who put on a burlesque show in the mid-19th century. Then, in the 1870s, he met Sarah. The two were soon married, and six years later, Edwin took on the role of managing places like Brooklyn's Grand Opera House and Manhattan's Fifth Avenue Theater on West 28th Street. And eventually, he transitioned from managing other people's theaters to opening his own, such as the Amphion Theater in the Williamsburg District of Brooklyn. The Amphion would go on to become the site of a brutal animal attack. In 1910, a wolf being kept in a cage there broke free during a performance and bit a number of the audience members. A police officer did his best to stop it, but the wolf ended up just shredding his pants instead. The wolf was eventually captured and handled, and the show resumed as normal. Sarah, on the other hand, had her own responsibilities to tend to. She had run for president of the Professional Women's League, of which she was a member. She sadly lost the race, but did not lose her standing. She also took care of the home that she and her husband lived in on Lafayette Avenue in Brooklyn, along with their son, Coco. Sarah spoiled Coco usually on his birthday in early July. But it was his 13th birthday party on July 5th of 1899 that made all of the headlines. It started out as a breakfast, one that counted among its guests the posh women who had supported Sarah's failed presidential run. Coco had been sitting by himself in the drawing room when they arrived with gifts in hand. They placed at his feet all sorts of boxes filled with jewelry, beads, and framed engravings. He said nothing, simply letting them drop their gifts off as though they were making an offering to a temperamental king or a watchful deity. One newspaper article referred to the event as a birthday festival and compared it to the party that Empress Eugene had thrown for Napoleon III. Once the gifts had been delivered, Coco was escorted into the dining area. He wore around his neck a string of pearls, and the cushion of his seat was covered in green silk adorned with embroidered lotus leaves. Coco was fed all kinds of delicious foods, as you might expect from attending parties of your own, 
including crackers, pudding, almonds, and milk. Since he was still so young, though, he didn't partake in the wine that his mother and the other friends were drinking. After they had finished eating, the women rose from their chairs and danced a quadrille to entertain the birthday boy. And he sat there, watching them perform just for him. When the dance ended, they read him poetry in his honor. It wasn't a normal birthday party for a 13-year-old boy. I don't know a lot of teens who would enjoy watching their mother's friends dance and read poetry, but Coco seemed to enjoy it from what I can tell. And as you'd imagine, various news outlets reported on the elaborate breakfast, writing things like, He is faithful to his home. He is affectionate without servility. He is charmingly decorative. The meanwhile, an article in the New York Dramatic Mirror said, He doesn't look a day over seven. That's kind of a strange thing to write about a 13-year-old boy. But the papers weren't writing about a boy, or a girl, or a person at all. Mrs. Knowles' beloved Coco, you see, was her cat. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. It's important that we preserve the legacies of culture's past. Whether they're ruins of ancient buildings or tools used by people who lived thousands of years ago or the books written during their lifetimes. And when possible, those artifacts should be available, ethically, of course, for us to study and learn from. That's where museums come in. We visit these giant repositories of history so that we can better understand those who came before us. But museums are not a modern construct. In fact, the first museum in history is over 2,500 years old, and its original curator was someone you might not have expected. Around 530 BCE, in an area of the Middle East known as Mesopotamia, there was a king. His name was Nabonidus, and he ruled over an empire known as Babylon. Nabonidus also had several children. His son, Belshazzar, eventually became the last king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. But it was one of Belshazzar's siblings who was responsible for the earliest known museum in the world. You see, Annie Galdinana was both a princess and a high priestess of the empire, and she was also an archaeologist. She had developed a love of antiques thanks to her father, who was also an antiquarian. He taught her about the past and its importance to the future of their dynasty, and it was he who encouraged her to start a museum. 
Enigaldi would explore the southern parts of Mesopotamia that her father had already excavated and collect what she could. With guidance from Nabonidus, she would then bring these items back to the palace and store them in a temple next door. Much like today's museums, Enigaldi's exhibits were put on display to educate visitors about the history of the region. She saved many artifacts, too, including part of a statue of King Shulgi, the second king of the third dynasty of Ur, as well as a Kuduru, a stone boundary marker, carved by the Kassites between the 16th and 7th centuries BCE. The objects stored in Enigaldi's museum could be traced back as far as 2000 BCE, and most had actually been excavated by her, not her father. Thousands of years later, a husband and wife team of archaeologists discovered the museum during a dig. Their names were Leonard and Catherine Woolley, and they had been uncovering sections of the adjoining palace at Ur when they stumbled on Enigaldi's pet project. Although they knew the site they were excavating dated back to the Neo-Babylonian era, they had no idea that their efforts would reveal such a startling find. The ancient person of Enigaldi had preserved a past that was ancient to her, so that thousands of years later, modern archaeologists would have access to an otherwise lost history. In cataloging their collection, the Woolies discovered that Enigaldi had gone to the trouble of arranging it in chronological order. The goal was to convey the passage of time to the museum's visitors. She had also carved symbols into clay cylinders, which acted like the plaques or labels that you might find on the wall of a modern museum to explain each exhibit. These labels were written in three different languages, too, including Sumerian, and revealed all sorts of information about the items that she had collected, including how old they were and where she had found them. As the millennia passed and the Sumerian dynasties died out, many artifacts wound up in private collections. You know, cabinets of curiosities. They were often displayed without any accompanying information and indications of their provenance. Instead, collectors would arrange the various items in a way that was aesthetically pleasing to the eye. But by the late 17th century, all of that started to change. England's Oxford University took possession of John Tedescant, the Elder's collection, after his death in 1638. He had acquired all kinds of books, coins, and strange objects over his lifetime which eventually became the Ashmolean Museum, opened in 1683. But museums like the Ashmolean, with their clear labels and carefully mounted historical exhibits, can all trace their origins back thousands of years earlier, to the woman who started it all. She was a princess, a priestess, a daughter, an archaeologist, and a historian, all wrapped up into one. Her name was Enigaldi Nana, the woman who made history by saving it. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.